Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley, and it's a delight to be in the Ramsey Solution Studio today. It's an honor to talk to Dave and Daniel Ramsey. And in this package of programs, we're going to talk about a transition that's been long in the making from Dave Ramsey when he started Ramsey Solutions in 1992 to where it is today. And to my right is Daniel Ramsey. If you don't know him, he's the new president of the Ramsey Solutions team. And let's just start, first of all, talking about, Dave, when you began in 1992, technically, did you ever have any idea, A, of the scale and scope of this business ministry and that one day your son would be taking over the reins? Absolutely not. No. (laughs) What I did know as an entrepreneur was that there were a lot of people hurting with the particular subjects we were addressing. So I knew the market need was huge, but I was, I guess, naive is the right word or ignorant to what it was going to take to tap that market, how much work was going to be involved, how many people were going to be needed, and how much money was going to be needed to cause it all to happen. Mm -hmm. The dollars that have flown through this place over the years, it just blows my mind. The number of people that are on our team blows my mind in order to accomplish the idea of tapping that huge marketplace. Mm -hmm. But I saw the market, but I just didn't know what the journey was going to look like. I was naive, young, dumb. But when when you were honing, and we'll talk more about this in our time together, when you were honing the get out of debt and, and those type of principles and then going to radio, there had to be some sense that there was a big market for what you were providing. Well, we knew fairly quickly on radio that, again, the need was there and that we did have the answer because we have the biblical answer to your financial question, you know, and which is obviously going to be correct because it's the truth. And so we knew when God's truth intersects someone's life and it causes not just this idea of an academic understanding, but it causes a spiritual transformation, Mm -hmm. a character transformation in the person, a maturing, and and allows them to go win permanently on these things. And so we started seeing the early signs of all of that very, very quickly. And of course, Sharon and I had seen it in our own lives because we start applying those biblical truths to our own lives. And then, but we start seeing from radio, and then you start seeing scale and the number of books, and you go, wow. And then we went into an auditorium and we're like, oh, there's a lot of people in here. And uh, I mean, the first one there wasn't, there were 35 people at the first event, but it wasn't long before there were thousands. It was, mm-hmm. it was pretty wild how quickly it blew up, but it didn't have anything to do with us. It just had to do, again, the need was there and we had the antidote. Daniel, when you were growing up, and this is all you knew, what dad did when Mm -hmm. he went to work somewhere every day, came home, at what point, junior high, high school, did you say, what's dad doing, and do I want to do that with him? I always knew what he did because I always got to be involved. You know, my dad did such a good job in inviting me and my sisters into different parts of it, and Honestly, sometimes I think that was because he was so busy. He wanted to see us, and he needed us to show up where he was. But uh, bring your kids to work. But then. you know, I don't have. I hear the stories of how hard he worked, and I don't remember him being absent. I'll say that. Wow. I don't remember him being gone or away or traveling or, and yet I hear the stories of what it took, and I know that it was true. But that wasn't my experience. I think that was probably because he was so present when he was home or when we were with him doing stuff. But. I got the opportunity to travel to a lot of our events, a lot of those early day events, a lot of those arenas that we would go to, those cold all day Saturday (laughs) arenas. And there I got to be part of it. I got to be invited to sell books at the table in the back. And it just created a love for what we do and the mission. And it was always so interesting too. On regular weeknights, when dad would come home from work, he was consistently always home at 545, always. 
and we'd sit down together as a family. And one thing I, I remember that valuing so much was just the frank conversation that he would have with us and with my mom about the business and about their day and about what he was struggling with or working on or excited about, whatever that may be. And so he did a great job at at not talking business all the time and and family business didn't take over family time, but he talked about it enough to where we knew what it was. Mm-hmm. We saw his passion and obviously that's attractive. When you see that level of passion and energy and the mission behind it and that we got to be drawn into it, uh, who wouldn't want to be part of it? And so my dad being my hero, as a kid, I always wanted to be him. Was there a time during high school and even college, you were kind of leaning with uh, Young Life, a parachurch ministry, and you were really involved with students. And I remember your dad and I having conversations a lot about your love, your first love in some respects, for working with high school kids. You know, that's how I, I really started my relationship with Jesus. Grew up in a great Christian home, grew up going to church, saw my parents model their faith so well. But for me, I was one of those classic church kids who, mm. you know, knew all the right answers, but didn't actually know Jesus in an intimate way until shortly after I graduated from high school. And so I, through relationships and mentors I had, one of those was a young life leader who really stepped into my life at an incredible time and led me to the Lord in many ways. That, along with what I grew up seeing and my parents modeling their faith. And so that was one way that in college I felt like I could give back and pour into people was through the ministry of Young Life and loved being a part of that. I grew so much out of it in my own faith and all different things that that it takes to love on awkward high school kids. And so <laughs> not being that far removed from that, I was still really awkward myself and was able to <laughs> embrace it well. And I really got to see how the passion and the the mission of that organization of Young Life, it's an evangelical ministry that helps reach kids who would never go to church. You know, kids who think youth group is lame. It's basically a youth group for for those kids. They trick them right. into yeah. coming in many ways. And I saw what we do at Ramsey as just an incredible parallel of an opportunity for evangelism, an opportunity to lead people to the Lord by meeting them at where they are in their life, in their pain, whether that be their finances or their mental health or relationships or whatever that is. Was there, was there a time in college when you said, okay, I, I really want to go work with my father? Or were you still kind of... Well, what's funny is, and we talk about this quite a bit now with our team, is there were several years where I said, absolutely not. This is what I remember. I don't want to be part of the family business. And the reason for that was, at the time, I don't think I could articulate it super well. But looking back, there was two things that really held me back. It was pride. Me wanting to be my own man, make my own name for myself. I wonder where you got that from. (laughs) (laughs) And so I really... Didn't want to be sure. in the shadow of my father, who is, you know, an incredible man, has done great things. So he casts a big shadow. And I was intimidated by that. The second thing was was fear. And really similar, I was afraid of not being able to fill shoes, living up to expectations, whether that be from him or myself or, you know, anyone around me, the expectations I perceived those people to have. The truth was, is my dad his expectation with me was to be who God created me to be and nothing more. You know, he didn't care. He obviously wanted me to come work here. He was excited about that. But I know that he would have loved me and been excited for me regardless of what I'd done. When you look at careers like medicine or law or certain, sometimes even ministry, you find uh, kind of a parental influence. It's an imperature almost on on the kids. I mean, uh, our friend Meg Meeker tells a intimate story about her dad being a doctor and wanting his daughter to be a doctor 
and yet the same kind of thing. Will, will I live up to dad's expectations? Can I do it? And then, at the, you know, in this shadow and different world. So in a family business, you must have lots of conversations about this. And if you're willing, talk a little bit about the breakfast you guys started having once a week. And I know some of that was just catching up, but there had to be some intentionality, knowing your father, mm-hmm. <laughs> on why you're doing this. Well, there's this dance between your personal relationship and getting work done and fulfilling your professional relationship. And we've had to be really hyper-intentional about that. So when Daniel came on board, really until about, gosh, about nine or 10 months ago, he never reported to me. He'd been here a decade. He's always reported to someone else, and in some cases, several layers of leadership below when he first started. And so one of the things I had to make sure I did was not interfere in that chain of command. The whole purpose of that was to give him some distance and to give him some protection from me, <laughs> number yeah. one. But number two, also to uh, well, there's allow, a favoritism too, yeah, right? Allow, allow him to find his own footing and prove himself yeah. without having been artificially lifted up, you know, that kind of a thing. And so his first leader was Brian Mayfield in radio, and Brian's tough. And uh, radio's a tough business, and he picked out a tough job to do, selling ads. I mean, it's ridiculously hard. And so I said, let's just start having breakfast as soon as you can work here, but we're not for business. It's just personal. We can talk about business if you want to, but I'm going to be your dad, and you're having a tough day, and your boss is a hard butt, and I'm going to be your dad. I'm not going to be your protector, uh, and I'll give you advice or whatever. Or I'll encourage you or whatever, but we also talk about you know his personal life and everything else, uh, family stuff. We can talk about anything, and we still do. We meet every Tuesday morning. Unless somebody's sick or out of town, you know, and it could really nothing's off limits. We just sit there and talk. In the last year, we probably spent more of that on business because there's a lot going on with uh, his transition into this new role. But prior to that, it was a lot of stuff. Any given day, I mean, just checking on his son, Eli, my grandson. You remember broaching, and, and those folks who don't know the story don't know you started out, you know, you had to work your way up, so to speak, mm-hmm. and prove your own mettle. But was there a point? In your mind, first of all, Dave, and then your response, Daniel, you know, when he said, okay, this is a possibility that Daniel could run this company. Well, I mean, when he comes on board, you know, he's my son. Rachel is a, a personality, has no desire to do that. Denise is our oldest daughter's oldest sister, is, is running our family foundation. She's the ministry kid, pure ministry kid. He's always been the more entrepreneurial of the three, the more business-minded of the three. So when he comes on board, I'm like, you can immediately go, well, that'd be nice someday, but boy, we got a long way to go, right? you know? And so that's how it started. And then over time, then we started going, okay, what would have to be true, to use my friend Henry Cloud's phrase, what would have to be true for this to happen? Because he's really, if he suffered from anything in nepotism, you get one of two things in nepotism. You get either the coach's kid, and it's super tough on you, and the coach is a butt to the kid, and, you know, it's extra hard, or it's too easy. And what we were trying to do with having distance between us and 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 then we put together a team of people that worked with us over the last six, seven years, a group of guys around the two of us as we walked on that is try to find the a reasonable thing there. But if we were going to cheat, we were going to cheat on the coach's kid side. I, I always told the kids, even when they're selling books and they're 13 years old at the back of the room, you got to work twice as hard and be twice as good just mm-hmm. to be respected mm-hmm. by the team. The people in the elevator are going to think you got it easy. They're going to think you got a hot knife through butter. And so you got to be extra excellent just to get up to par with the rest of the team looking at you and the outside world looking at you. And so 
for that reason, we're going to be extra hard. So in order to take each step along the way, and it really wasn't a straight line into this sure. role, but to take these steps that we took into leadership and into different things where we learned, got, gathered different skills was extra hard. It was tough. A lot of calluses. <laughs> then were there, were there a couple of defining moments when you said in your head, okay, this is a possibility and okay, yeah, let's do it. You know, as I think back, that whole idea was pretty overwhelming to me. I think deep down in my spirit, obviously that's that was front of mind. It was something that we would talk about occasionally. But in general, when I first started, we kind of said, hey, let's not really talk about it because just that conversation puts a weight on me that I don't oh, for want. A 22-year-old just right. in college. You were, you were single right. at the time. That's no, right. No, it was no obvious. Yeah. And I already had enough people making comments about it. <laughs> like, oh, you're going to do this one day. And I honestly got a ton of comments about me doing the radio one day. That's just how people see see my dad and see, you know, his role. But I always laugh at that because there's no way. That's not at all what I'm interested in. I want to be behind the scenes in the business. And so that was an easy answer. But anyway, to your you question. Haven't, you haven't broke that conversation yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. That's to come. That's, Ra- that's Rachel. She's, that's her sweet spot. And all our other personalities are phenomenal. No, for me, defining moments, I don't, I can't think of a particular day, but man, there were some seasons for sure that were really hard that I didn't enjoy. Mm. But God had a plan, and God was equipping me and strengthening me through some of those seasons of mm-hmm. learning how to. One of the hardest lessons I had to learn was how to be a good follower. <laughs> I tend to <laughs> to want to just take the reins in any situation. Don't know anybody like and, that. And uh, <laughs> it might be a little genetics. I don't know, <laughs> but learning how to be a good follower. And I've had several seasons of that, and I've been humbled. You know, I've lost. I've screwed up a lot of things. I've made a lot of decisions that were. Looking back on it, dumb with good intentions, but dumb and created bad results. And so I look around the company. But they're good teachers, right? I that's mean, right. Yeah, that's right. I look around the company, and you know, there's a lot of teams that I've had the opportunity to work on over the years. And I joke with them often of, "Hey, you're fixing a lot of the things I screwed up, <laughs> you know, years ago." It gives me, uh, you know, that experience has been been really great for me. Yeah, the radio broadcast, your book, something you talked a lot about transition, and we've had these conversations in the 15 years I've been privileged to call you friend. You just don't see a lot of businesses doing this well, ministries or businesses. There seems to be a, a fall off, or it is that favored child, or you know, fill in the blank, estate babies. Two or three things that this has to be true for a family transition to work. You know, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. The old King James, train up a child in the way he's bent, the way he's shaped, who he is. And so Rachel uh, was not called does not have the skill set to run this place. Uh, Forcing her into that, just because she's very articulate and great in front of a camera or a microphone, would have been a disaster Mm -hmm. for her Mm -hmm. and this place. Uh, You know, each of our children have, thank God, found something that that they plug into that is the way they're shaped, the way they're bent. And so that's the first thing. they got to be called and it's got to fit. And, you know, they got obviously got to want to do it. And then the second thing is you, you have got to separate the family relationship from the work relationship, and everyone has to demand excellence of each other. Again, Henry Cloud taught us that with what we call hats or roles. Mm-hmm. When we're here, I'm the CEO, and Rachel's a personality, and Daniel is the president. And I treat him in a meeting, private or public, like I would treat one of our other top leaders. 
no differently. And he shows me the same respect. And I treat them with dignity, and I challenge their ideas, and we sometimes argue, fuss, and fight. And, you know, we all have, around here, the leaders all have uh, the same footing to uh, to argue about something and push back and all that kind of a thing. But it's never, I never use my dad voice. I use my CEO voice. Sometimes that's a loud one, too, but <laughs> but it's a different tone. I can't imagine. <laughs> it's a different tone. When I'm, I'm not a yeller. I don't mean that, but it's no, a I lot know. of, we use a lot of passion around this place. So, well, that's sort of the and, rumor and, on the street is, you know, if you're not willing to fight, you probably won't work here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, it's how we process for, for good, good information. And, and we treat each other that way. And then when we're at home or when we're at Christmas unwrapping gifts, I'm not the CEO. I'm Papa So Dave. how do you turn that off, though, for both of you? I mean, because it seems— Very intentionally. You know, I think it's tempting at times, but it's just part of how our life has been. I think my parents have modeled it really well, so it's kind of the expectation. In a way, it's that's all set. you've ever known. That's right. It's we a- started talking about it 15 years ago, and we're better at it now than we were. But this idea that, um, no, we're not going to sit at the table, because, I mean, his wife, Denise's husband, they don't want to sit around and talk about Ramsey all day long, what, what's happening down here. They don't work here. And so when we're all together, we're talking about grandkids, we're talking about vacation, we're talking about Christmas gifts, or we're talking about whatever. Mm -hmm. And if someone wants to talk business, you have to ask permission in a family gathering. Because we're wearing Papa Dave hat, son Daniel, father of Eli hat. Um, We're not wearing CEO, president, whatever hat. And you've got to keep that stuff separate. But then when I'm at the office, I mean, I demand that's the right word, or command the same excellence from Rachel as I do George Camel, or as I do Ken Coleman or Dr. John Deloney as a personality. You know, the way you act in front of the, the way you act in the green room when you're doing a media hits, exact same for all the personalities. No blue M&Ms, you're there to serve. You know, we've got all these things, and Rachel's got exactly the same expectation on her as the others, and the same pay scale, by the way. You know, I talk to a lot of second-generation business like family members. And one of the common things I hear, unfortunately, is people say, I miss my dad because mm. they only have a relationship with their boss or their CEO. Yeah. And they don't actually have a dad who they can just be real with and transparent with and ask advice that isn't laced with action. You know, And so talking to that, I it just makes me so thankful at what my parents have set up and how intentional they've been that I do have a dad. And I have I have a phenomenal dad, and I have a phenomenal leader at work, and they're two separate things. But we learned that. That's a best mm-hmm. practices well, thing. I was going to say. That it, was not something that just, like, we were somehow smart or something. No, I mean, we started studying mm-hmm. when it worked with succession plans and when it doesn't work, and what are the weak spots, and what are the things that will go wrong, and all those kinds of things. We started studying that and getting good advice from people who had done it well. Or people who had messed up, we go, okay, we're not going to model after that, you know, and, and you can have an anti-mentor or a mentor. But, and so that, we picked that line up from Henry Cloud. He was talking about how he had done some coaching with a business and you got to switch hats. And we're all sick of talking about hats because we talk about it too much, but we just go, okay, wait a minute, time out. There's thing going on down at Ramsey and ever, this is the first time we've all been together since then. So the people want to talk about it. Everybody else is that okay. Yeah. Five minutes later, time back out. Hat, switch hats back and we just have to you have to compartmentalize yourself because otherwise you lose a piece of yourself or you conflict it and i use my dad voice or you get a teenager with an eye roll reaction rather than a dadgum leader or a good strong salesperson you know a good strong salesperson doesn't do eye rolls 
that, that's a teenager reaction to a dad. That's not, you're wearing the right hat. You know, there you go. Okay. I'm going to, I got to fight, but it's not like, oh, you're an idiot. You don't get to do that with your boss at work. At least most places <laughs> here you don't, I know. So <laughs> that kind of stuff has been paramount learning from other people on that, the roles, the demand of excellence, the dignity, the intentionality around those things. And then you've got to have a track. It has to be going somewhere. We meet 80 year old owners of businesses who have a 60 year old son who still doesn't know when he's going to step in. That's absurd. That's absurd. You're killing yourself. You're killing everybody involved. You're killing the customer base, the ministry, you're killing the the expectations of the team because they know the old man's going to drop dead suddenly. And then you got a kid that's not ever been in the saddle. That's just, and, he, and he's not a kid anymore. Oh yeah, my gosh. Of, oftentimes that founder, their identity is so wrapped mm-hmm. up in being the CEO that, you know, you always joke that when they hand their keys off, their succession plan is to throw the keys as they fall into the grave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting, the number of businesses I've known in different ministry contexts where the founding guy typically doesn't want his kids involved. And almost it's it's kind of tragic at one individual in Pennsylvania who built a phenomenal business, fine Christian guy, and his daughter was like a secretary and his son was a ne'er-do-well. And he wouldn't even speak of them. I asked him about transition and family plans, and he was elderly, still fit, still working long hours, owned his company. But it was just sad to see all this he had built, probably for all intents and purposes, go away. And again, those models are more prevalent mm-hmm. than, and, and ministry is the same way. You know, you've seen this in, in your interface with churches. Churches are terrible at transitioning founding pastors, and it's it's really. Well, those of us that are founders, it requires a stubbornness, a perseverance, a grit to bring something out of nothing. You know, and you got to fight, you got to grind, and that very, that very, that toughness makes it super hard to let go. And so it is an act of will. It's an act of spiritual discipline to let go. 30 seconds each, the biggest lesson you've learned from the other in this transition. This feels like it's taken forever. I would not have had the patience that Daniel's had as we've worked through all the different positions he's done. He's had patience with God because God had a plan. If you map out what he's gone through to get to this, there's no way we would have mapped that out. We were hands off enough and said, okay, God, show us what to do. Show us when he's ready because we're not putting him in there until he's ready. It's not fair to him, not fair to me, not fair to anybody else, not fair to our customers and those kinds of things. So he's more than ready. And then there we were. But his patience with God on that and his belief that everybody had his best interest at heart uh, was a maturity beyond anything I would have had in that same decade that he did that. Yeah, coming off of that, I would say similarly, looking back on this last season, you know, I've been here almost 10 years and seeing God's hand is so evident. And I think my faith has grown so much being able to look back and seeing what God's done. And the way that God has kept me humble and kept me patient there's been a lot of times where I didn't want more responsibility, but hey, the business necessitated it, like a change <laughs> needed to be made, and I, I was the right guy for the job. And as the years went on, I thank God, I was leaning on him more, and I was more embracing than what was next in those seasons. And so, all in all, I'd say I'm just thankful for the Lord and the faith that he's built through seeing him wet work. And so that, that's what I'm most thankful for. Well, I appreciate you both y'all doing this and look forward to 
talking further in the future how things transition. But one thing I would say to our listeners and viewers, as you watch the Ramsey Solutions team, the one thing I've been impressed with is their coming back again and again to this as a ministry. And I think too often that's lost when you see a large, successful business. So thanks for your commitment to Christ, to one another, to your family, and I pray God's great favor in the months and years ahead. Thank you, my friend. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.